0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first of two devoted to our June 2017 issue on infectious disease. I'm your host, Erica Gorenberg, a second year graduate student in the neuroscience program here at Yale.
2: And I am your co-host, Neil Ravindra, a third year graduate student in the molecular biophysics and biochemistry department. We are also joined today by one of the deputy editors for our special issue on infectious disease.
0: Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Josh Sheets. I'm a student in the pharmacology department
1: and what's your role with the uh, Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine?
0: I'm currently the managing editor as well as a deputy editor for the uh, 2017 June issue on infectious disease.
1: Fantastic. So we're going to um, talk to Josh about the issue a little bit later in the podcast, but right now let's get into some history of infectious disease.
2: So why don't we start off in the, in the 1800s where, when seven, 70% of people died before the age of 25, mostly due to infectious disease.
1: That's a really good place to start. So um, one of the interesting outbreaks that happened in uh, the 1800s was a cholera outbreak in in 19th century London. Um, And this is one of seven historical cholera outbreaks, but it's one of of the more interesting ones, I think. So the symptoms of cholera, if you don't know what those are, are um, dehydration, vomiting, and diarrhea, the patients can become lethargic, have sunken eyes, dry mouth, cold, clammy skin, um, their blood pressure drops, and untreated people with cholera can actually produce 10 to 20 liters or 3 to 5 gallons per day of diarrhea. So you can imagine that's really um, a lot of water that you're losing and um, people can die of de- dehydration pretty p- slowly and painfully.
2: So, so when you think of cholera, you, you think of diarrhea, is that is that typically what causes the death uh, due to cholera?
1: Yeah, so I think um, it seems like the, the death is due to dehydration. So they're losing water from, uh, di- mostly from diarrhea, but also, as I said, um, vomiting is one of the symptoms. And uh, that's caused actually by um, the bacteria, which is V cholerae and um, cholera the the bacteria for cholera gets into into the intestines so when you consume it it gets into your your body and usually most bacteria are killed in your digestive system in the gut Um, because your stomach has lots of acid that breaks down a lot of bacteria but if it gets into your intestines it can make its way um, and get into the wall of your intestines um, where it can attach and replicate and produce toxins Um, and the toxins affect um, signaling within the intestinal walls that allow for reabsorption of water, and they stop that water reabsorption.
2: But it was the 1800s, so... They didn't know that. They, they didn't know that, of <laughs> course. So there, there are some crazy, crazy theories, I guess, or what you can expect uh, in the 1800s. What did they kind of first think it was?
1: Uh, so first they thought, they thought it was a, a cloud. That there was just this... Miasma of of cholera just floating through the air and the cholera the cloud. <laughs> yeah, the cholera <laughs> cloud. Um, and then and then there was this conspiracy theory that um, because the the spread was worse in poorer districts of London, that maybe the rich were specifically trying to poison the poor and get rid of them. Um, and then, of course, if we're we're in the eighteen hundreds, it's got to also be a theory that, that that we're being punished by God, um, because the city is clearly. Um, just just needs to be punished.
2: But it was actually spread through the water um, and specifically uh, because of waste drainage into the Thames, right? Yeah, and that was also used for the water supply. So basically in the, in London at the time, people were taking drinking and bathing water from a sewer.
1: That's really disgusting. Um, I'm glad we have come up with better uh, sanitation methods since the 1800s. Um, But that gets into a really um, interesting point that we want to make about infectious disease as a whole, that there are many different ways that disease can be transmitted. um, And one of those that's highlighted by cholera is the transmission through the fecal-oral route, um, which means that the bacteria is released in um, feces, and then somehow it is taken into the body by the new uh, the new host um, through their mouth, so they ingest it. So this, this highlights the importance of hand washing, like you should really wash your hands before you cook anybody else's food or your own food. Um,
2: and it, and it can actually also be found in, in food. The, the bacterium can be found in shellfish and plankton, right? And, and that's because oysters will eat the plankton and then people will eat the oysters and therefore have uh, Vibrio cholerae.
1: Yeah, so that's how it can get started if if uh, it's not being released in in feces. But the the fact that it was released in feces is really what caused this outbreak in in London because of because of that cycle of sewage and uh, water usage.
2: So what is it about about Vibrio cholerae that makes it produce diarrhea in people?
1: So as I was mentioning earlier, it binds to the intestinal wall. in the the intestine. One of the the main roles of the intestine is to reabsorb nutrients and water. Um, Cholera toxin that is produced by the V. cholerae bacteria um, increases the production of a messenger molecule called cyclic AMP. And cyclic AMP um, causes the cells to secrete water, um, sodium ions, potassium ions, chloride ions, all of these nutrients that your body would normally be taking up in the intestines. And because the ions are leaving, the water kind of follows them because of, um, because of osmosis. And, um, and this leads to all of these things in, le- staying in the intestinal lumen um, and being released into the feces rather than absorbed back into the body where they're, where they're needed.
2: How how deadly is cholera if uh, if untreated? How many people will it kill, or what proportion of people will cholera kill?
1: It actually kills about half of affected people.
2: And it still it still affects us uh, to this day, not just in the 1800s, but at least as of 2010, it still kills people every year, right?
1: Yeah, actually, in 2010, it caused um, but somewhere between 58,000 and 130,000 deaths. It's a very big range. Um, but that's, that's what, that's the information that we have. Yeah.
2: Wow. And, and it's still, if it's not known by cholera, there's, there's another nickname for it, right? Uh, the, it's nicknamed the blue death, I think, because people's skin can turn bluish gray from extreme fluid loss.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so since we don't want to die of the blue death, the really important thing is that we, that we stop cholera from spreading. So we have to sterilize and that means, uh, removing it from removing contaminated secretions from sewage um, treating the sewage better not releasing it into our main water supply um, warning people so that they know um, that this is you know something that happens when you don't wash your hands or, or sterilize your sewage um, purifying the water so um, this is really a bigger issue in in um, Third world countries or places where they don't have set up sewage systems, um, but making sure that the water that they use is separate from the water that they, uh, where their uh, waste is going.
2: And um, along those lines, it it was thought that cholera had its orin- origins on the Indian subcontinent. Correct.
1: That's correct. And then it spread through through the trade routes to um, Russia and then Europe, and now obviously in North America as well. And that's, you know, I mentioned seven pandemics, and so they happened all around the world.
2: And so it's truly, truly pandemic in the sense that it's it's really an epidemic over quite a large geographic area now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But cholera is only one of the many pathogens that humans have faced in their history, in our history. So um, what defines a pathogen, Neil?
2: Well, so we, that's a really interesting question. So we, we thought we had this idea that we would send a survey out to, to Yale faculty members that study immunology, epidemiology, and a variety of other fields related to infectious disease to see how they defined it. So, so they gave us some interesting responses regarding a, a pathogen, some including very simple ones like just that a pathogen is a bacteria, a virus, or a protozoa.
1: Um, bact- a pathogen can also be just any type of microorganism that can cause disease, which is a, which is a little bit of a broader definition. Um,
2: and, and a pathogen is, is always context dependent. For, for example, many bacteria, which would be considered as commensals, and commensals are any organism or an organism rather that participates in a symbiotic relationship But it's a relationship in which one of the species benefits at the cost of of another. So so many bacteria, which can be considered commensals, can cause disease in the right location in the right host. And uh, one one example is uh, pneumonia, which is a gut commensal, but also an important cause of hospital-acquired infections in immunocompromised hosts.
1: If you want to know more about commensal bacteria, we talk about it uh, a lot in our, actually our first episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast on the microbiome. So you should check that out if you're interested. Um, but going back to pathogens, pathogens don't actually have to be. Um, just microorganisms, they can they can be virus bacteria, fungi, worms, but they can also be proteins. So, um in the case of prion disease, misfolded proteins are transmitted um, and can cause neurodegeneration and cell death
2: and And I think that's really the most general definition that we that we got from from our survey. Um, but pathogens themselves be they be they bacteriums, microorganisms or or prions. They, they can lead to infections when they multiply. Um, so what, what, it, what is actually, what is an infection then?
1: Well, Google says that it's the process of infecting or the state of being infected, which is not my favorite definition. Um, but it, it seems that it's just this, this multiplication of pathogens um, that leads to some kind of response of, of the host. Um, and the host can protect itself in a couple of different ways. Do you want to talk about those, Neil?
2: Yeah, so at least two strategies for protection on the part of the host include resistance and tolerance. So resistance can be any attempt by the host to reduce or eliminate the the invading pathogen. And tolerance can be uh, the battle on the part of the host to reduce damage that can be inflicted to the host by the pathogen without really a decrease in the pathogen's burden. So.
1: And and these things can happen um, without you noticing. So you can have an infection and be asymptomatic. Just because um, just because you don't feel sick doesn't necessarily mean that you're not infected with something. Um, and those those are the hardest to estimate. We don't actually know how many people are infected with things but don't um, exhibit symptoms.
2: Right. So it's it's really hard to collect the data if there are asymptomatic infections, which are still infections. Um, So everything is really still an estimate. Mm -hmm. Um, But so there are many consequences of infection and, and things can go wrong on the part of the host and cause immunopathologies.
1: Yeah. So immunopathologies are probably things that you would experience when you are are. Um, symptomatic. So sometimes the, the bacteria or, the, sorry, the pathogen itself is causing the symptoms, and sometimes it's the immune response that's causing your symptoms. And so that could be um, because it's too strong um, and you're having infl- an inflammatory response, your immune system is overreacting to the presence of the pathogen. Um, and sometimes they're just not strong enough to eliminate the invader. So you don't want to damage the surrounding tissues with your immune response, but you also want to be strong enough to get rid of the pathogen.
2: So, in the part of the host, then, when you when you have an infection, what are some signs uh, of infection?
1: Well, if you think about when you know when you get a cold, even um, one of the signs of infection is just you know you're tired, you, you get sleepy because you're um, you have such a strong immune response that. Um, you're using all of your energy for that instead of the things that you normally would use. Um, loss of appetite. So, you know, you think about it, you're not very hungry. Um, depending on the type of virus or bacteria, um, this can either help the bacteria or it can help you um, battle the infection.
2: But we're still not really sure what the what the mechanism is for, yeah. for loss of appetite as a response that's, to infection.
1: That's true. Um, fever as well. We don't un- entirely understand uh, why or, or what what the reason that we have fevers when we have um, infections are, as well either. Um, we know that b- the body temperature is regulated by the hypothalamus, which is a, a region region of the brain, but um, and that it, and that uh, infection can cause um, the released release of prostaglandin E two, um, and that's a an enzyme that acts on the hypothalamus to trigger. Um, creation of heat in the body, but it's unclear why that is helpful. Um, there are some hypotheses if you wanna, wanna talk about those.
2: Yeah, so some, some of the hypotheses that exist uh, about why uh, we might trigger fevers in response to infections are that many bacteria have a, have a narrow range of temperatures at which they can live. So increasing our body temperature might actually slow down their replication or their survival in our bodies. But also another hypothesis is that increased heat increases the mobility of leukocytes, that's immune cells, and also increases how fast they can phagocytose or eat the pathogens that are infecting us. Um, so it, heat can also in, increase the proliferation kinetics of T-cells more generally. So it's not really clear which one is is really what the the mechanism of the response is, but to complicate the issue even further for diagnosticians, the signs of an infection will depend not only on the type of pathogen uh, which infects us, but also on the nature of the host.
1: That's true. Um, one of uh, A good example of this is if you think about Lyme disease. Um, so Lyme disease is actually discovered n- really nearby to Yale in Connecticut. Um, in the early 1970s, when some children and adults near Lyme, Connecticut, uh, East Lyme, Connecticut, I believe, began experiencing uh, debilitating health issues. So they had these signs of arthritis, swollen knees, paralysis, really bad skin rashes, headaches, um, severe fatigue. And they were initially diagnosed with just ar- ar- arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but then with more conversations with um diagnosticians, they noticed that everybody had had a rash before they the onset of their arthritis, and everybody had had a tick bite soon before um, both symptoms. And so, you know, that's uh, that kind of coincidence doesn't really uh, lend itself to just everybody has arthritis. So they continued doing a little bit more research on these patients.
2: And so actually, a scientist studying Rocky Mountain spotted fever, William Bergdorfer, in 1981 started studying Lyme, um, Lyme Connecticut, and what he found is that a bacterium, in deer ticks shaped like a spiral, and this bacterium is called a spirochete, is what actually causes Lyme disease. And so now that that bacterium is actually named after him, it's Borrelia burgdorferi, Dorferi, that, that do you That sounds know? right, I think,
1: <laughs> burgdorferi, I'm not entirely sure of the pronunciation.
2: And, and it's this spirochete that actually causes Lyme disease. So so we know some, it's similar to other diseases, and these generally are called vector-borne diseases. What other diseases are have this kind of ability, or this nature in common with Lyme?
1: So Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is what uh, William Bergdorfer was studying, was also a tick-borne disease. But we know of also several um Mosquito-borne diseases like malaria, Zika, um, West Nile, those are all um, are all mosquito-borne. There are also some um, f- that are born by flies in Africa, um, like sleeping sickness. Um, and so, these are this is a really good example of pathogen-host interactions because it doesn't um, the bacteria, the spirochete, doesn't affect the um, the host that is the, um, the vector. So it doesn't infect the vector in such a way that the vector becomes lethargic and has pain because then it it wouldn't be able to, to replicate. Um, but it does, um, have negative impact on humans and other, other mammals. In the case of Lyme, um, it's really dependent on the life cycle of the tick, um, as it, as it matures, how it can spread the disease from, um, from small mammals and into humans.
2: Right, so, so tick bites are, are really special because they, they actually contain molecules that can disrupt the host's immune response at the site of the bite. And, and what what does that actually do? What do? How does that help it infect hosts?
1: Well, it just makes that that bite site much more habitable for the spirochete to enter the body and start replicating, um, without the immune response beginning to, to, you know, to kill it right away. Um, so that kind of gives this the Lyme disease a bit of a head start, um, in terms of in terms of infecting the the patient.
2: And that actually allows its migration outward uh, in the skin, which is. The result, which results in that typical that typical rash that you see associated with Lyme disease.
1: Yeah, so if you're not familiar with that, it's kind of a a a round, um, almost like target shaped rash around the site of a tick bite.
2: Right, and and it can even spread through the bloodstream to the joints, which lead to the arthritic symptoms, the heart as well, and the nervous system.
1: Yeah, in the nervous system, it can actually cause the the fatigue, but also other um, types of neurodysfunction, including emotional and memory um, issues in the patient.
2: So um, so there was actually a, a highly effective Lyme vaccine, correct, designed at Yale?
1: Yeah. Yeah, by Errol Fickrig. Um, but the it was so expensive to produce that it's now been limited to um, just veterinary settings, which is disappointing, um, for, because, because especially recently Lyme has, uh, increased in incidence, but, um,
2: and that, that's a really complicated issue. And in fact, that it's so complicated that we devoted a, a previous series on drug development entirely to some of the, the reasons why certain drugs or vaccines aren't developed or pushed through to market.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and if you don't, just don't worry if you're uh, in an area that has Lyme disease. We actually also had a, um, Our colloquium for this issue of, Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine um, was about infectious disease as it relates to public health. And one of the things that our speaker talked about um, was Lyme disease and Lyme disease prevention and the way they're studying that at Yale. And one of the things that they found um, was that not only bug spray and, um, you know, tucking your pants into your socks help, but if you're outside and you shower afterwards, that's good for preventing Lyme disease as well.
2: So we've talked a lot about uh, a few different pathogens, including uh, Vibrio cholerae and spirochetes. But but what about host properties, uh, and how do those how are those kind of important for the spread of infectious diseases?
1: Well, this is actually another question that we we had in our survey that we sent out to faculty, and we got some very interesting answers from them. Again, um, so. The faculty, one of the points that the faculty made was that the host has to have the right cellular re- receptors for the bacterium, or sorry, for the pathogen. Um, so that's why things become species-specific. Um, different species have variants of similar receptors or um, differences in the way they, they carry out the same processes. And... Um, and so the species specificity is determined by whether the, the virus or bacterium or parasite can attach and enter the cells, um, de- which is dependent on those receptors. They also will need access to nutrients and the right pH. And so those are all things that, are, that play a role.
2: Um, and how about, so? how about some infectious diseases that have negatively impacted the history of humanity and impacted human progress? without actually infecting humans.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because when we think about infectious disease, um, we tend to think about ourselves getting sick, but we're not the only uh, organisms. We're
2: not the only hosts.
1: <laughs> we're not the only hosts. Um, so one of those, one one uh, type of infectious disease that really negatively impacted um, human progress without actually infecting humans was potato blight. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, Neil.
2: Yeah, so it's caused by uh, Phytophthora infestans. I'm sorry if I if I can't really no, pronounce. We,
1: we apologize for all of our <laughs> Latin mispronunciations.
2: But it, it's basically a fungus-like eukaryotic organism, and it and it's the culprit of the eight. Uh, it causes a uh, potato blight, and it caused it in the 1840s in Europe, 1845, famously uh, in Ireland, and also it caused a famine in 1846. So, it's not just this this eukaryotic organism, this fungi like eukaryotic organism, can also infect tomatoes, actually. But in potatoes, it's they strikingly cause the potatoes to look shrunken on the outside and corky or, or rotten on the inside and it's it's very difficult to control, and it actually still causes a lot of problems to this day,
1: yeah. so how much um how much damage does does this cause uh, this year like around? Uh, this current time.
2: So economically, it causes about $6 billion worth of damage to potato crops every year. Um, And so it's still a big problem. So a lot of people are trying to, with genome editing technologies, to breed in resistance. But even that is really hard because primarily it's hard to cross cultivated potatoes with wild potatoes.
1: Um, Oh, that makes sense because you would lose all of those cultivated potato properties. That's
2: right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so potato blight is kind of a, an interesting thought experiment for us because we we're usually focused on humans as hosts. Um, But going back to humans as the main host, we care about transmission and with as many diverse pathogens as there are, there are also a lot of diverse ways in which they can transmit Uh, infections to humans specifically. Do you want to talk about some of those?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, there are two main classes of transmission of um, a pathogen, and one is direct and one is indirect. So direct transmission is um, what you think of as, you know, direct physical contact between an infected person and a susceptible person or direct physical contact with blood or body fluids. Um, So that's like... You know, you hear about like mono, the kissing disease. If you're like directly exchanging saliva with somebody, um, that is a direct transmission of mono. But then if you think about indirect transmission, this occurs um, betw- between contact of um, the ho- a potential host with a reservoir um, such as like a surface or an object. That's when you see those commercials for like Lysol, and they're saying like, "Look at all of the disgusting things that are on your countertops. You should use Lysol and get them all off." Um, that that's the kind of thing um, that would be an indirect transmission because the the pathogen is staying on another surface for an extended period of time. Other examples of indirect transmission are those vector-borne diseases that we talked about um, a little earlier with Lyme disease and West Nile and and Zika, um, or things like rabies where you can get bit by another mammal. Um, It's also if an infected person sneezes or coughs and you inhale those infectious droplets. Um, so, it's any anything where you're not actually directly touching the other individual but you're still coming into contact with the pathogen.
2: So, so that's why it's it's always important to both practice proper sanitation but also good hygiene and and of course to cover your mouth when you when you sneeze, yes, right? Please cover so your
1: mouth when you sneeze. <laughs>
2: the, the, the kind of stuff hopefully all of us learn before kindergarten. Hopefully. Um
1: so there's, uh, there's yeah. other ways of, of getting in um, other, you know, big classes of ways that we can um, get pathogens into our body. So uh, ingestion is one of them.
2: And that can be foodborne or uh, waterborne, right?
1: Right, which we talked about with cholera a little bit. But also, you know, when you have those E. coli outbreaks that you hear about, you know, oh, this type of lettuce is recalled. Make sure you don't eat this lettuce. Um and, and it highlights, again, the importance of hand-washing.
2: Mm-hmm. Which um, we talked a little bit about in our in one of our last podcasts, the Microbiome podcast. Yeah,
1: right? one of, actually our first, again, our first uh, episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast, but we can uh, kind of re-highlight it again here. Um,
2: yeah, so it's, it's about Ignaz uh, Simulwys, uh a Hungarian physician who was actually committed to an asylum due to his belief that newborns died from infections that were transmitted when obstetricians did not wash their hands between childbirths.
1: Yeah, so he, people were so uh, adamant that it couldn't possibly be bacteria on people's hands that, oh no, we don't need to wash our hands when we're like ge- helping people give birth or like doing surgeries or things like that. Um, eventually, um, he th- obviously, we now know that that hand washing is important, um, but the this the, the disbelief of the general population forced uh, Semmelweis to an asylum to for the rest of his life. Um, so just think of him when you wash your hands.
2: Right, and I mean a thirty percent to near one percent uh, rate of mortality is is quite a quite a difference just for
1: just oh, for yeah. washing, washing hands. hands. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, th- I mean, in going o- along the lines of transmission of pathogens, I mean, bodily fluids, you talked th- about that a little bit, um, whether it's through sexual transmission, blood, uh, or animal bites. Um, th- those include things like rabies, hepatitis, Zika, but also one of the most known examples, HIV and AIDS.
1: Yeah, so um, we now know that this is a really, you know, a really good reason to have safe sex. Um but even if you're familiar with the history of HIV/AIDS, I think it's important to highlight it because um, it's one of the things that highlights the importance of knowledge about um, a specific disease, kind of empowering people to protect themselves a little bit more. Um, and so, HIV/AIDS is the leading killer due to a single infectious agent. So, due to one infection, um, it is the leading cause of death. Um, it is overall the sixth leading cause of death in the world. So it is still really, really deadly. Um, But the current epidemic began in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, It hit in the US in 1981, when previously healthy gay men and people who um, injected drugs began to exhibit an increased incidence of a rare lung infection and and an aggressive form of cancer that were both actually due to being immunocompromised. But they didn't actually know that at this point.
2: Right so all they knew at the time was that two, there were 270 cases of severe immunodeficiency amongst gay men and by the end of 1981 121 had died as a result of that severe immunodeficiency
1: Yeah that's almost half of the people who were uh who had that severe immunodeficiency died in the first year that it was uh recognized in the United States and then by the end of 1984, only three years later, that number had risen to 7,699 AIDS cases and 3,665 AIDS deaths in the United States. And so that's I, I mean, that's huge.
2: Right. And and it and it really spread so, so greatly through through contact with specific bodily fluids. Um, and, and as we know, most frequently via unprotected sex with, uh, infected individuals, um, who would transmit it to other individuals who would come into contact with their semen.
1: Yes. Um, but. Rectal fluids or vaginal. Yeah. Fluids. Like and really yeah. any, any fluids associated with sex. It can also, um, they started noticing it in, um, newborns, like young children, and they found that it could also be spread, spread through blood and breast milk, um, and so the, also the transmission uh, by blood allows people to transmit it by sharing needles, which is a big problem. Um, and then again, transmission between mother and child. But how does HIV actually work?
2: Right. So we know it's a, a retrovirus, but but what does that, that actually mean? I mean, there are so many phases of infection.
1: Yeah. So a retrovirus as a, a whole, the definition of a retrovirus, just means that kind of its um, method of making... Um, making its cellular machinery its proteins is kind of the opposite of what we think. Usually we go DNA to RNA to proteins, but HIV goes RNA to DNA and then back. Uh, And the way this works is the HIV can kind of infiltrate your or an affected individual's immune cells. So it first binds to some receptors on the surface of the CD4 immune cells. And this is where host specificity becomes important. And that binding then allows the the outer membrane of the virus to fuse with the cell and the inner capsid, which is just kind of a a little block of proteins, um, enters the cell and can um, allow for reverse transcription of the RNA that's inside that capsid. The capsid also contains some viral enzymes that are important for making um, the DNA.
2: Um yeah right so that that integrase that viral enzyme can actually splice the newly created HIV DNA into the CD4 cells DNA.
1: Yeah so not only has HIV gone into the cell but now it's made its own genetic information that's mixed in with uh the person's uh immune cell and uh, genetic code.
2: And once it once it's integrated itself it's it's ready then to to take off right?
1: Yeah it can produce thousands more uh HIV particles just like itself. Um, and it because the CD4 cell then treats the HIV DNA that's been integrated like its own, it just produces all of the RNA and the proteins that the HIV needs to then um, assemble itself and bud off and um, become a new viral particle.
2: And then, of course, uh, hit another CD4 cell and repeat.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, we know that the HIV... Um, patients are immunocompromised because HIV kills uh, those CD4 cells. Um, but it's unclear how it's actually killing uh, CD4 cells. So that's one of the main areas of research that's that's continued. Um, and I think we're going to get to talk about AIDS a little bit in a little bit with Josh. Um, but continuing on this topic, AIDS is just, uh, if you don't know the difference between HIV and AIDS, AIDS is just the final stage of the HIV infection. Um, and the set of symptoms and illnesses that occur with that much um, immunodepression.
2: Right, so it's, it's the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome after an HIV infection, but treatment can actually start before you even have AIDS, correct?
1: That's correct. So they're both prophylactic treatments to prevent the, the virus from even taking hold in your body, and there are also treatments that can be used to um, prevent the HIV from replicating. And these happen at many of the different stages that we talked about, from um, the HIV binding to its um, maturation uh, and its integration and its uh, reverse transcription of RNA to DNA. So all of these different things can be inhibited by different um, HIV drugs to hopefully prevent HIV infection from continuing or or stopping Mm. or starting, sorry.
2: Um, so yeah, so in in addition to the ways we've discussed to prevent disease transmission through specific channels, there are there are still other methods where we can prevent disease. Um, we talked about a little bit of them with HIV, where kind of understanding the mechanism of infectious transmission allows for the design of very specific drugs uh, and and treatments for HIV. But there are also Other things like, um, I don't know, do you wanna talk about antiretrovirals and vaccination?
1: Sure, so antiretrovirals um, are those drugs that I just mentioned that you can combine um, different antiretrovirals to prevent different stages of HIV and that combination can um, actually improve um, HIV, er, er, sorry, decrease HIV virus replication. Um, And so that's a really good treatment for HIV and then vaccinations. Um, I'm sure everybody has heard the controversy about vaccinations, um, but we want to highlight that it's really vaccination is very important, and that um, vaccines don't cause autism. Uh, the studies that originally showed this have been repeatedly falsified, um, and so it's really, really important to get vaccinated because it allows for herd immunity.
2: Right. And it prevents even even recent measles outbreaks in California and Minnesota, or yeah. it could have.
1: Yeah. So herd immunity is just the idea that if you um, prevent the idea from infecting a large enough portion, proportion of the population, you can prevent the disease from reaching those that can't get the vaccination. And so the more people that are able um, to get the vaccine that do get the vaccine, they kind of insulate the people who are unable because the disease can't actually infiltrate those communities.
2: Right, um, so, and then of course, there's the the most widely known I think way of treating infectious disease antibiotics,
1: yes, but don't forget that these only work for bacterial infections and not viruses, so you cannot get antibiotics for your cold <laughs> the main they're really the important thing to know about antibiotics is that um they're great, but overuse can lead to antibiotic resistance um so antibiotics, or uh, resistance, is just the the ability of the bacteria to mutate and avoid um, avoid being killed by the antibiotics. They they no longer are sensitive, and this is a problem when you have multi drug resistant strains of bacteria um, that you now we know, we now don't have antibiotics for. Um,
2: and and of course antibiotics are produced naturally as well, but but pharmaceutical companies. In a complicated kind of economic reasoning, tend not to necessarily want to develop new antibiotics, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, because the antibiotics work so well and so fast that it's not actually a good investment for them to um, make more, to, to invest uh, time and money into making more antibiotics.
2: It's all about that ROI, I guess, the return on on investments.
1: They prefer the chronic diseases like, uh, you know, insulin and things like that. Um, But again, if you want to learn more about the way drug development works and this whole pharmaceutical process, you should um, check out our issue on drug development and our podcasts that go with it. Um, So, So, so so
2: (laughs) Josh, we, we haven't had the chance to hear from you as much yet. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so why don't you tell us what your issue is all about, what the special issue issue is all about, and and why do you think infectious disease is an interesting focus topic?
0: Yeah, Neil, uh, th- thanks for this. that's an interesting question. So um, I, I guess if I had to, um, you know, state it in a quick Twitter style, um, you know, um, sound description, <laughs> yeah, I would I would just say that. Um the issue really is just about the the nature of infection from a broad biological standpoint and uh, and really what that biology means for the physicians seeking to uh, to cure patients with infectious diseases. So um, when we were sort of thinking about um, issue topics about a year ago, uh, we wanted to really invoke both the biology and the medicine in the title of our journal. Um, and so that really uh, made us think of two two simple questions uh the first is that uh, you know what is a pathogen which we um, erica and and neil you have already touched on in this podcast um, but and, and, you know we know a pot, uh, a pathogen is um, it could be a bacteria a virus prion um, but also you know from a uh philosophical standpoint um, we we thought that Infection. It was interesting, and in, in thinking about this, this concept of uh, miasma theory and and how germ theory took over, and now we've really, um, uh, really developed as a society in terms of fighting infections. Uh, and, and I guess the second simple question that we wanted to ask was, um, what are the properties of infectious agents um, or pathogens? Um, and I'll, I'll state that, uh, you know, Leo and I, the deputy editors for this issue uh we're not experts in in immunology or in infectious disease really uh we're we're students in pharmacology and we really wanted to um, because of our you know lack of ex- expertise in this area and, and um you know we wanted to to get to know the field of infectious disease a little bit more um and and so we, by doing this we wanted to present a broad range of topics um and and in this way sort of honor the, the scientists and the physicians who um, have made those basic discoveries and allowed people like us, the pharmacologists, to come in and, and you know, develop or discover a drug to fight those infections. Um, so ultimately, you know, we're asking the questions, um, you know, what are the properties of these pathogens that can be exploited for therapeutic purposes?
1: It's interesting because you guys came up with the same kinds of questions as, as we did kind of independently from one another on how we wanted to guide, you know, your issue and our episode. Exactly. So, cl- you know, clearly we're, uh, we're on the same page here. So why, you kind of highlighted why, why you picked um, or wh- what your issue is about, but why did you pick this issue now? Um, why is this a, an important time um, for fields related to infectious disease? Why is it interesting now?
0: Right, so um we were really just influenced by a previous issue of of the journal, which was the microbiome issue in September two thousand and sixteen learning all of these uh really interesting concepts and and theories related to you know um you know micro the microbiome and and um diseases or um the microbiome and
2: um yeah, and sort of, and sort of like any pathogen or yeah, exa- mode of transmission, right? Exactly. Yeah. But then pathogen? one that, okay, sorry, can can you know lead to infection or deleterious effects for the host.
0: So yeah. we we learned a lot about you know how uh, bacteria um, can can um, you know promote health through the microbiome, uh, but we wanted to better understand you know the, the infectious side of of these microorganisms.
2: And and it's also, I mean, a hot time for uh, infectious disease, right? Because there are some recent global epidemics, the Zika virus among them, um, and still the AIDS, uh, HIV uh, virus.
0: Exactly. We were, um, you know, kind of in um, keeping in mind some of the hot topics like antibiotic resistance um, and those global epidemics that we're facing. You know, Zika virus, HIV
2: so what what types of researchers are are pushing the boundaries of our understanding of infectious disease? I mean, is it is it clinicians, molecular biologists, cell biologists?
0: Um, you know i'm I'm not, again, I'm not an expert in infectious disease, but um I would say that uh, not necessarily one one field or one subject of biomedical research is important um, here. we We really need you know, the biochemists to understand the enzymes that these uh, microbes are taking advantage of. Um, we need the cell biologists and the pathologists to understand um, how, how these infectious agents are, um, you know, infiltrating their hosts. And we need the, the clinicians and the, the pharmacologists to, you know, um, take it into the clinic, uh, take this knowledge into the clinic and, and better understand uh, what's going on here.
1: I think I think that's really important that we that we want to highlight is the the importance of collaboration. Um, I had the chance to talk with the dean of the school of public health as we were preparing for this episode, and one of the things uh, Dr. Vermond mentioned was just that um, you know how important he thinks it is that we're not just focusing on our our little you know, bubble of research, you know, that we're we're collaborating with biochemists to molecular biologists to clinicians and all the way through to public health so that we can, um, like, make an impact on policy with our research and things like that. Um,
2: Yeah, and it's one of the best things about the the journal, the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, because we try and and foster that sort of collaboration in the issues that we choose. Right.
1: So um, getting into a little bit more of the detail on a specific, I guess, issue related um, papers, what factors did you guys see in the in, top, in the articles or um, as you were, as you were reading through things um, that made for a good or bad host?
0: Right. So there are many different host factors as uh, Neil and Erica, uh, you both have touched on in the um, first part of this podcast. Um, whether these factors are, you know innate or acquired. Um, So, for example, you know, general health, um, your diet, your exercise, genetics, the environment all go into, um, you know, the ability of uh, one's immune system to fight off an infection, um, as well as, you know, mental health. That There's a whole other psychological side to um, your general health that goes into um, fighting infection. And then you mentioned also uh, risk factors that might be involved, like substance abuse. Um, And so... Uh, for different infectious diseases, there are different risk factors. Um, and one that uh, we've, uh, we've highlighted in a, an article for our issue is um, actually contact lens use um, that uh, the, the authors, Neelom and Nierkorn, um talk about in their, um, in their article on an, an infectious amoeba that actually um, infiltrates the cornea.
1: That's terror. I mean, I don't wear contacts, but that's still terrifying. Um, I mean, d- what did they say about this amoeba from from contact lenses? Did you? If you don't have more detail, we can uh, we can in- instruct our listeners to to go look at the journal. It's open access, so they should be able to find this article themselves.
0: Yes, so the, the amoeba is actually, um, it's called acanthamoeba, mm-hmm. and it's a protozoa uh, that can be found in soil, water, air, um, and it's also it thrives in nasopharyngeal mucosa. Um, and like I said, contact lens is a major cause, um, but it's actually pretty rare if you think about how many people wear contact lenses. Um, you know, that's thirty million people just in the United States, um, and there are actually only one hundred and fifty cases each year, of of um, you know this infectious disease.
1: Okay, so it's not something that anybody really needs to be uh, concerned about. But that is interesting that this is you know an external factor that's influencing whether people are more likely to get
0: right. And and the fact that the numbers are so low has kind of um, influenced. Um, the authors of this publication, um, where they're they're trying to understand how the immune system might be playing a role and in, in fearing with this the progression of this disease.
2: and it and it seems like a really, really interesting disease, keratitis, um, because basically, I guess from reading the the article, the way that it works is that the amoeba actually invades the cornea of the eye and and sort of physically moves through the eye, which is which is pretty crazy. So, Right, even, and, even if it's not going to lead to a cure, it's still sort of an interesting.
0: Right, and it can actually exist in two two different stages. Uh, one's a more vegetative stage, and the other is um, it's called the cyst stage, uh, where where the amoeba becomes more compact, and it can actually live um, on the the surface of the eye for you know decades before you really see any symptoms. Oh wow. So wash your,
2: wash your contact lenses lenses. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, and you you still probably won't get it anyway. Um, So we also have talked uh, a a decent amount in this episode about HIV. And I know there were some papers um, in the, in the journal issue about HIV. Do you want to tell us about any of them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So we actually had three articles on HIV in our issue. Uh, one was focusing on the connection between epigenetics and HIV, and the other two uh, was focusing on a phenomenon known as elite control of the virus. Um, and so for, for the first topic, um, ep- epigenetics and HIV, um, the authors um, wrote a, a really nice review on chromatin regulation and the histone code um, and how it relates to latency of the virus. Um, and so, as we know, HIV can sometimes be uh, hidden from immune clearance. Um, and so this is obviously an, uh, an obstacle to eradicating HIV. Um, but the, ar- the authors of the study argue that epigenetics plays a critical role in establishing and maintaining a latent reservoir. And so this kind of also harkens us back to our December 2016 episode on epigenetics, um, where, we, where um, Mike and Carol, the deputy editors, um, put together a nice issue um, talking about the different ways in which the structure of DNA um, and chromosomes play a role in regulation of, of genes
2: and transcripts. So do, do Turner and M- Margolis actually uh, instruct us that the three-dimensional structure of, of DNA is influencing HIV?
0: It seems it seems as though there's some evidence for this, and um, they've they describe different ways in which uh, chromatin can be regulated, and how this might um, be altering the transcription of HIV genes. Um, and and one example is the modification of DNA by methylation, as well as post-translational modifications on on histones.
1: So there were some other other HIV-related um, issue uh, isu- articles in the issue. Um, so do you want to just quickly tell, like maybe not in, in a ton of detail, but tell us about you know the, the big picture of those?
0: Sure, absolutely. So the the other two articles were more related to this concept of uh, leak control of the virus. And one was an was a review by uh, Galonzo Gill and colleagues um, talking about. Um, elite controllers. So, um, so we know that uh, there are 36 million uh, people infected worldwide with HIV, um, but there's a remarkable 0.2 to 0.5 percent um, that have a viral load that's undetectable um, without antiretroviral therapy, and so with with many, uh, you know, like other medical. Anomalies uh, we, we think this is an interesting case that's that's worth better understanding. Um, and perhaps we can use what we learned from understanding elite controllers to better control the, the, the virus and, and normal controllers and maybe even one day be able to eradicate the, the disease.
1: That's amazing that there are, there are these people who are controlling the virus so so well um, considering how how devastating it is in most cases. It really
0: is amazing.
2: And, and you also had there were also some papers about antibiotic resistance in in the issue as well, especially with vancomycin resistance. Do you want to tell us about uh, some of those papers?
0: Yeah, so there was a, a nice review um, by McGinnis and colleagues uh, about the resistance of uh, resistance to vancomycin in Staphylococcus aureus. Um so you know staph infection is uh, serious. Um, bacterial infection that infiltrates hospitals uh, across the United States, um, and it's it's a normal uh, micro uh, microbe in the upper respiratory tract, um, but they can this bacteria can infect um, other tissues and and uh, is is commonly a cause of skin infections as well as food poisoning, um, and. And we can think back to the very first episode of the YJBM podcast, and and how we've talked about um, tackling Staphylococcus um, using Alexander Fleming's, Fleming's uh, penicillin. Um, but nowadays, uh, the drug is typically, uh, or the bacteria, excuse me, is typically tackled by um, methicillin or other, um, you know, m- more effective. Um, Drugs, and when you know when you treat an infectious disease with a, with uh, the same agent constantly, um, you you risk um, you know leading to resistance uh, to the drug, and so methicillin resistance Staphylococcus aureus is a really uh, large issue in in hospitals, and sort of the last resort. Uh, drug for tackling this uh, resistant version of of Staphylococcus is vancomycin.
1: But now they're seeing resistance to vancomycin. Is that is that y- true?
0: Yes, and so this this article goes through um, how how you know the mechanisms of vancomycin resistance. Um, but it's a particularly scary scary case because you know. Where we're seeing resistance to our last resort dr- drug.
1: Multi drug resistance is not uh, not what we want to see.
2: Especially in hospitals. Right.
1: Got to get those uh, pharmaceutical companies to invest in, <laughs> <laughs> in antibiotics. Um, thank you so much for walking us through uh, the that part the issue um, of the journal I I think it'll be really interesting um, for our reader for our listeners sorry who are who found this um, episode interesting to to go in and you know maybe check out some of the articles as well um, get a little bit more information a little bit more of what's going on currently um, since we gave them a little bit of the historical context um, but we but we wanted to just uh, let you all know that, that you know infectious disease remains um, the number one cause of premature death um, in the world and over 17 million people die prematurely each year and nine million of these are children, which uh, accounts for about 50,000 preventable deaths each day. So um, you know you're hearing about about this fantastic research that's giving us so much... Um, you know, insight into how these diseases are transmitted and how um, how we can begin to treat them and understanding um, just how they work. And so uh, just keep that in mind when the next time, you know, you're washing your hands or you remember to have safe sex or you go get your vaccinations, that um, it's important to also do your part in preventing the spread of infectious disease as well.
2: And, of course, also it's it's very important to continue research funding um, to, to continue some of the projects that we've discussed today. So motivate your congressmen.
1: Uh. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, just, you know, listen to your, your, local, your local scientists when they tell you that vaccini- vaccinations don't cause autism. Um, and With that, we want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us next month for our second podcast on infectious disease where we'll discuss our issue and the current state of infectious infectious disease research at the laboratory bench and in the clinic with Dr. Heidi Zapata, a rheumatologist and assistant professor of immunobiology here at Yale.
2: And thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for the YJBM and its podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast.
1: Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Tomowaki Sasaki, Yaz- Yasmin Zakanyaz, and Helen Balenson, and the rest of the YJBM staff. We're produced and written by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, Ali Kuhlman, and Neil Ravindra.
2: For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu.
1: Thanks again to Josh. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash University slash sets slash yale-journal dash of dash biology dash and see you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.